Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're actually going to finish the book of 2 Corinthians today, which is uh, kind of exciting. It's been a, a, a challenging book for me uh, for a lot of reasons. One, there's, there's been some, some rather convicting parts uh, of it. Um, including today's passage in some ways, but also because it's such a personal letter that Paul's writing to the Corinthians with, with what he's dealing with with them. Uh, sometimes it's just hard to understand exactly how this applies today because it is so personal. But, but today we're, we're going to look at, at the, these final verses beginning in chapter 12, verse 14, and down through the end of the letter in chapter 13, verse 14, uh, and, and wrap up this study uh, and hopefully be encouraged in the gospel once again. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Paul writes, beginning in 12, 14, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual morality, and sensuality that they had practiced. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come... I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Most gracious Father, as we look once again to your word, we ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit whom you have given us that we might understand and believe your word. Help me that I may speak in his power that as your word goes out from my mouth, we all may be changed from one glory to another. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, sometimes when you come to the end of Paul's letters, uh, it feels like he just kind of randomly throws a whole bunch of things that that maybe he was tired of writing. I I don't know, but at the end he's like, oh, and I wanted to say this, and I wanted to say this, and he just kind of throws a bunch of random thoughts out there. And this feels a little bit that way, but... But there's some things that kind of tie everything together. First of all, he's, he's talking about the, the fact that he's about to make this third trip to visit the Corinthians. Remember we talked at, back at the beginning of this study how th- there was some delay in his coming and that created some of the tension and, and all of that. And, and there had been a harsh visit and a harsh letter. And, and now he's writing this letter to them uh, to, to say, hey, I'm about to come and, and kind of make sure everything's ready, and he talks about different things that that need to be ready. But he's also been, throughout this letter, defending himself against the charges of these super apostles and against the the, the ministry that they brought that was leading the Corinthians away from Christ. And so he's kind of wrapping all of that up here in this last chapter and a half uh, of, of this text. But it all kind of builds toward... 2 Corinthians 13, verse 15. This, this call to, for the Corinthians to examine themselves. And, and it all kind of builds toward that reality and that, that call. Are they in the faith? So, so everything's building there. So in the first, in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 12, Paul had sought, he's telling them that he had sought not to be a burden to them, giving himself for their sake. But this oddly resulted in their questioning his integrity. We, we see, like, he's like, look, I'm, I'm the parent. He uses this parent-child analogy. I'm the parent. It's my job to save up for you, not the other way around. And, and, and so, so that's what I did, and I wasn't a burden to you. I spent myself for your souls. And in other words, I gave what I had. I supported myself so that I could come and preach the gospel to you. I loved you this way. I I loved you more by doing this. But they saw that as a sign of weakness. They'd they'd been taught by these super apostles to see that as a sign of weakness. And in fact, they they assumed, they they believed this lie that, oh, actually what's going on here, he's he's getting his on the back end. He's just deceiving us. He's presenting himself as if like, oh, no, I'm not a burden to you. But, but he's skimming some off the top of this, of this giving that, that he asked for. for a drink. He's doing something. He's deceiving us. That, that's what they had been convinced of. And so he just asked these questions. Where did I do that? Where did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent? These were the charges that, that they were making. These were the charges that, that the Corinthians or, or the super apostles were making against Paul and the rest of his crew. And so Paul's just saying like, Where's the proof, essentially? Where's the proof that any of this happened? I sent Titus to you, and and the brother, whoever traveled with Titus, did they take advantage of you? 
Were they being deceptive? Were they ripping you off? Or were they coming in with these? No. Did we not act in the same spirit? Was Titus not with you in the same way that I was with you? Giving of himself for the sake of your souls, that you might hear the gospel, that you might participate in the wonder of the mystery of Christ. Of course, the answer is, well, yeah, that is how he was there. Did we not take the same steps? Was our ministry not consistent? It's what Paul wants them to see. Because what he's trying to get at is that we're not the ones who have come with different messages. We're not the ones who have come with different practices. We've been consistent. What I came with, what those whom I sent to you came with, what everybody associated with with true apostolic ministry came with was the same thing. We came with the gospel of Jesus Christ and we had the same motivation. Your good, your salvation, your building up, that's what we came for. He's wanting them to understand that the super apostles were the ones who had come with something different. They were the ones who had created the problems. They were the ones who who had created this tension that he's now dealing with. Then in verses 19 through 21... He, he begins to explain the point of his defense. He, he's apparently worried that, that, that what the Corinthians think he's been doing through this letter is just trying to make himself look good. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves? See, this is a related thought to what he just said. Because they were thinking, they had been led to believe that through this deception that, that really Paul was just in this for himself. That, that he was kind of a, 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 a ministry mercenary. That he was just there for the money. And so he's like, wait, you know that's not why we've been defending ourselves, right? You know that's not what this is about. Really, I don't, he's just not that concerned, as we'll see in a little bit. He's just not that concerned with what they think about him personally. He's saying, no, it's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. See, Paul's not worried about, oh, you think ill of me. He doesn't care. Think less of him, beat him up, leave him for dead. Great with Paul. As great as that can be with anybody. What Paul is concerned about, what he understands is what I brought to you, the message I delivered to you was the pure, uncut message of Jesus Christ. The pure gospel of grace. His defense of himself was that that might be believed, not that he might be thought well of. He wanted them to understand, no, what I gave you was the word of life. What I gave you was the new covenant that brings righteousness, that brings forgiveness from sin. What I came and announced to you was the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ. His point in defending himself was not that they might think well of him, but they, they might be built up by the message, the gospel, the Christ that he proclaimed. Because he understands that's all that he has to offer. That's all any of us really have to offer is the hope of the gospel. I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. And here Paul had mentioned last week this this anxiety for the churches. Here he kind of begins to peel back and and help us understand what's going on there. I fear that that perhaps when I come, I, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. Paul was concerned that that when he would show up, that he would realize that that the repentance that 
that had been reported to him by Titus when he went and visited and came back and said, hey, look, they've shown themselves innocent in all, in all these matters. Remember back in chapter 7 and 8 where he's like, no, it's, it's, going, it's going remarkably well there now. As Paul sees them led astray by the super apostles, he begins to wonder, is that really the case? Or am I going to show up and find that, that all the same things that were going on are continuing? What were the things that were going on? He, he lists them for us. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder, impurity, sexual morality, sensuality. He's concerned that, that he's going to come back to Corinth after having preached the gospel, after having called them to repentance, which is turning from their sin and to Jesus, that he's going to come back and he's going to find that it's all just been lip service. And that they're actually still walking in their sin. That they haven't turned from these things. And he's worried about this because he's seen them stray, it seems, from Christ, from the pure message of the gospel, from from this announcement of, of righteousness in Jesus Christ, from this announcement of the new covenant. And so he's concerned that he's going to show back up and find them that way. But also that, that they're going to find him not as they wish. And it's, it's not immediately clear what Paul means by his fear that they might find him not as they wish. So some seem to think that, 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 he's, gonna, that he's worried that he's going to have to show up and, and be strong and bold and, and kind of cut him off at the knees. But, but that, that seems to be at some level, as we work through this letter, kind of what they want. They, they, were, they, they were critiquing Paul because he was so gentle. I, I think part of what is going on here is that perhaps Paul is concerned that they will again be reminded of Paul's manifest weakness when he comes again to them on this third visit. That he's going to show up and he's going to be the same Paul. With the same issues, with the same weaknesses, with the same apparent inability to speak real well, with the same unimpressiveness, with the same scars, with the same stories of of being left for dead. They're going to find him to be that way still that they've wanted him to be stronger than he is, but he is going to show up and he's still going to be the same weak apostle that, that he's been boasting that he is. And that that's going to lead them astray once again. In other words, he's concerned that they've so bought in to the super apostles' message that, that ministry prowess and, and ministry success and, and all of that really is a life of glory, a life of power, a life of ability, a, a life of all of those impressive things. And that when he shows up without that, he's not going to be what they want and they'll be led astray again. See, he's, he's worried here that they're not actually clinging to Christ, but to all kinds of other things. He continues in chapter 13, this is the third time that I'm coming to you. He's still writing about this trip, and, and, and he's, he's, he's telling them now how it is that they need to deal with one another when there's tension, when, when there's sin, when there's a charge to be made. It's got to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, you can't just show up and be like, you know what, I don't like this guy. I'm going to accuse him of, of whatever so, so that he has to go away. No, that, like, that's, that's not how this works. Incidentally, it's, this isn't how it works when Jesus outlines church discipline either. 
If someone sins against you, we read in Matthew 18, you go to your brother. If you win him, great. If not, bring witnesses. If you win him, great. If not, bring him before the church. See, see this, the, the life of the Christian is necessarily this communal life. That there's no way around it. No one by themselves, not even me uh, as the pastor or, or any individual elder, no one by themselves has the authority to just discipline people. That's not how this is designed to work. But Paul says, I, I warned those who sinned before and all others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did on my, when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. See, they've been concerned, it seems, with Paul's patience in dealing with them. That he was too soft on sin. That he didn't just come out swinging and just cutting people off at the knees. And Paul's saying, no, that, that, that will come eventually. If that's what's needed, that'll happen. And in fact, if I show up on this now third visit and after many letters and, and I find that, that things haven't changed. I'm not going to spare people anymore. Paul's not saying in, in his flesh like, oh, I, you've gotten on my last nerve. That, no, he's saying, no, the, the time has come now for me to, to deal more directly with things. Why the patience? Why the long-suffering? Why not just walk up to someone that you see in sin and as a minister just blast them right off the face of the earth? Why not that? Well, because that's not what God does with us. And, and the minister and the Christian, not just the minister, but the minister is to re reflect the heart of God in dealing with people. There comes a time where the hard things have to be said in hard ways. But it's after long suffering. Think of how God dealt with the Israelites. How long was it that he was patient with them before they were kicked out of the land? Because it could have been, it could have been, he would have been entirely just if that had happened by the end of the book of Judges. In fact, he would have been entirely just if that had happened by the end of the book of Joshua. In fact, he would have been entirely just if they just never got there. Remember what, what Moses found when he came down with the law? Day one, right? They had built an idol said, this is Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This golden cow, he brought you out of, this is your God. And they were worshiping him. We forget sometimes how long-suffering and patient our God is. And he is incredibly long-suffering, incredibly patient, incredibly gracious incredibly gentle. And we should praise him for that. That's how Paul is ministered. He was crucified. He says, it like, look, 
that there comes a time, there comes a time where you got to say what you got to say. And I'll do that when I show up if I need to, but man, I hope I don't need to. If you ever find yourself looking for another church, one thing that I would counsel you to run from, put on your Nikes and run with all your might, is from, from a minister who is anxious to get to discipline quickly. Run. Run. Yes, there comes a time when that needs to happen. But might we learn to reflect the patience and long-suffering of our God as we grow with one another in grace? So then Paul says, verse 5, perhaps the, the, one of the best-known verses in 2 Corinthians and, and, and certainly one of the, the, the most kind of ripped out of its context and used verses in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking through this because, because there's, there's, there, there's myriad ways to read this that, that far from, from bolstering you in your faith, which is what Paul's goal is here, is, is to strengthen them, to bolster them, to remind them that no, you are forgiven. You are in Christ. That, that this verse has a tendency to get used in a way not for that end, but to completely undo people. So there's a couple of things that I want to say right at the beginning. This is not like a normal test that we're used to. As I shared with the kids, if you're in math class, you can be in math class and fail the test. Fail the math test. I've been told. And here's the thing. When that happens, you have to stay in math class because you failed the test. It's the same way as I told the kids with the law. You can be under the law and fail the test. In fact, guess what? We all did. Every one of us. But Christ is under the law and failed the test. But guess where we stay when we do that? We stay under the law. That's why it's such a heavy weight. That's why it's such a heavy weight. The test that, that Paul is talking about here, we need to notice a couple of things. First of all, he says, test yourselves, examine yourselves. He uses two different words. The first word that he uses for examine is used almost all the time that it's used in more of a negative sense where the Pharisees, the scribes, or whoever would come and put Jesus to the test. Like That's where it's used almost. There's a few positive places where it's used. But it's almost always a negative statement. But there's only two places... Where, where the, the object of the test, the thing that is to be tested, is us, ourselves. And, and that's here, and that's in 1 Corinthians 11, when it's talking about the Lord's Supper. And, and we need to, to be precise in what it's saying. It's not saying, test your works to see if you're in the faith. It's not saying, test your fruit to see if you're in the faith. It's not saying test your law keeping to see if you're in the faith. 
It's not saying any of those things. And why? It's actually, it's actually saying something much more specific and, and something, something simultaneously much simpler and much more difficult. Here's what I mean. If it were test your works to see if you're in the faith, guess what we would all do? If we were examining our works ourselves, guess what we would all do? We would all pass the test with flying colors. Why? Because we would lie to ourselves and we would look at those shiny spots on us and be like, yeah, I mean, okay, fine. I maybe messed this up a little bit, but I did all of these things right. I maybe didn't love this person well, but I loved this other person so well. I maybe failed to do this thing, but I did this really, really well. And all we would be doing is pointing to the things that in our personality, our natural man has a propensity to do anyway. Some people are just naturally more joyful. They just showed up that way. Some people are naturally more, what's the word? Truthful. They just showed up that way. And when we test our works and we test our fruit, we have a tendency to find those things in us that line up with something positive in Scripture and go, see, I'm bearing fruit. But as many before me have pointed out, the fruit of the Spirit is singular. And if we're really going to test the fruit, it's got to all be there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul's not saying test your fruit here. He's saying, no, 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 it's something more basic. Are you in the faith? That's the question. Are you in the faith? Now, here's the thing. If you are in Christ, you can't fail this test. That's the beauty of it. See, if you make it about testing your fruit, if you make it about testing your works, if you make it about testing your law keeping, then then you can be in Christ and, and fail that test. Why? Because you still struggle with sin. Because your flesh, though it's been crucified to the cross with Christ, though your old man has been crucified with him, it it has this zombie characteristic to it, and it tends to show up again and again and again and want to cause problems. And it has a tendency to convince, convince us that we're not in the faith. But if we're in Christ, we can't fail this test. And here's why. There's only really, you can kind of summarize it, there's really two questions on the test. And here's the thing that's amazing about this test, is the Bible repeatedly tells you the answer, they're yes or no questions, very simple, and the Bible repeatedly tells you that the right answer to both questions is yes. But here's the thing. Our natural man will never answer that way. Here's the two questions. They're summed up, I think, actually, 
I think the first two membership questions sum it up perfectly. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope except in his sovereign mercy? And the Bible tells us the right answer is yes. But here's the thing. The natural man will never say yes to that. They'll never say, yes, I am a sinner justly deserving God's displeasure. They'll say, no, who is this God that thinks he has anything to do with me? They'll say, no, I don't like his rules. They'll say, no, I would never worship a God like that. The the natural man simply won't cop to the truth. The second question is this. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel? And again, the Bible says the right answer is yes. That's the answer we should give. But the natural man won't. Because he doesn't. He doesn't rest in one who came to save sinners if he doesn't think himself a sinner. And he never will. When Paul says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith, that's what he's asking. Do you recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Congratulations. If your answer to that is yes, you are qualified to be a Christian. Think about what Jesus said. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Think about what John says in his first letter. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. That the first question on the test is, do you recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? That you've utterly failed, that that, that you've, you've ruined it all, that you've made a mess of the whole thing? And the right answer is yes. So the first way to fail this test is, despite sound warnings, you're content to continue in your sin. Specifically those things that Paul has mentioned, talking to them, that this quarreling and, and, and anger and, and, and jealousy and the sexual morality, all if you, if you and, and here we got to be careful. Paul's not saying if you continue to struggle with sin and temptation, you are not in the faith. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if, if you continue to walk in sin, if you continue to choose that as your way of life and downplay your sin or deny your sin or act like it doesn't matter or act like God can't see it, then you have a problem. Perhaps we can, we can illustrate this by an imagined scenario. You've got your kid all dressed up, ready to go to some nice event. They've put on their nice clothes. They've combed their hair. They've taken a bath. Not in that order. They've done it and they're ready to go. And you say, don't get dirty. We're going to take family pictures. Don't get dirty. And the kid runs outside and he climbs a tree and he wrestles the dog and he rolls around in a mud puddle. In other words, he has walked in uncleanness. Or you've got the same situation But the kid's making his way to the car. He's paying attention. He's keeping his clothes clean. And then then something happens and he trips and falls in a mud puddle. Those are two entirely different situations, aren't they? 
Both of them are dirty. Both of them, the dirt needs to be dealt with. But one walked in uncleanness. And one did his dead level best to walk in cleanness and fail. When, when, when John, when, when Paul, when, when they talk about walking in sin, they're talking about the first reality, not the second. And, and I'm not pretending that, that somehow because the kid tripped that somehow our sin is ever not our fault. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. It's just an illustration. Let it be. But here's the glory as we just read in Psalm 107. It's that even the kid that walked in uncleanness can come in and admit his failure and apologize and ask for forgiveness and receive it. Think about what happened in Psalm 107. Some did this. And then he lists something that you shouldn't do. But they called out to God in their trouble and he heard them in his steadfast love and he delivered them. Others did this thing seemed a little bit worse. But they called out to God in their trouble and he delivered them according to his steadfast love. Others did this and he just goes through all of these different things. So Paul's saying, do you see that? Do you see that your only hope is in Jesus Christ? And do you cling to him alone for your redemption? Do you cling to him alone for your hope and your security and identity? Or do you run to all of this other stuff? Do you run to your reputation, to your career, to your successes, to to denying your sin so that you feel a little bit better about yourself? Do you run to something that makes the guilty feelings just go away? Or do you run to Christ who is in you? That's the test. That's the test. Are you clinging to Jesus alone for your salvation? Because see, the Corinthians weren't. At one point in their history, we know from Paul, they were just acting like their sin didn't matter. They could do whatever they jolly well pleased. And no one could hold them accountable for anything. At another point that Paul seems to be dealing with mostly in this letter, that they they were being led away from Christ, running back in some ways to the law because of the ministry of the super apostles. And so Paul says, look closely. Is it Christ to whom you are clinging? Is he your hope? Is he your security? Is he your identity? Is he your redemption? Is he the one in whom you have forgiveness? Or are you running to something else? Are you yoking yourself to someone other than Christ? Are you yoking yourself to just excusing your sin? Are you yoking yourself to to how right you get it? Are you yoking yourself to, to, to your successes in this world? Or are you yoking yourself to Christ? That's the test. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you understand that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that in Jesus Christ you have the Savior you need? Then you're in.
the faith. Because that is the faith. That is the faith. And the fruit will come. Because as we, as we read earlier, he is perfecting or he has perfected those who are being sanctified. The fruit will come. But the test is, are you resting in Christ alone or something else? Paul goes on. I hope you will find that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to fail. See, he's going back to this point of, of, have you been thinking that we're defending ourselves all along? That's not what I'm doing. I, I don't care if you think we failed the test or not. What I hope is that you pass the test that you remember the gospel, that you rest in Jesus Christ. You may point to all kinds of things and say stuff like that phrase that that we hear way too often. I don't know how someone can be a Christian and, and then you fill in the blank. I may appear to have failed the test to you. That doesn't matter to me. I hope that you don't. I hope that you do what's right, that you cling to Jesus Christ. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. You being restored to Jesus is our only goal, Paul says. And so I'm writing these things to you. And then he tells us what the point of ministry is. That I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. I have this authority. But why do I have it? For building up and not for tearing down. I don't want to have to use this authority to to not spare you. I don't want to have to use this authority to cut your legs. It's not what I want. Because I've been given this authority to announce the gospel to build you up. Now, yes, sometimes the building up requires a tearing down. But the authority Paul sees that he has is authority ultimately that's to build up. And he's saying, look, if you'll look to Christ... I don't have to be severe with you. I don't have to show up and tear you down. But I get to show up and rejoice with you. And so that's what he calls him to. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love will be with you. Stop all the bickering and quarreling and jealousy and cling to Jesus Christ. And agree with one another about him, that he is your hope. And all of this other stuff can fade away. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. This was a more common thing than it is now. But I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, Stefan, that when you see me talking to a visitor at our church that that is known to be very, very socially conservative, to come up and kiss me on the face and put a $20 bill in my pocket like I'm some kind of preacher prostitute. That's not what it means. Stefan. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I want us to notice one thing about these closing verses. And that is how in the midst of what seems so hard, we see Paul's confidence. 
that they will rejoice. That God will be with them. That they will receive the benediction, this triune benediction of grace and love and fellowship. In other words, Paul is confident in the gospel in them to the very end. He knows the word of God will not return void. He knows the hope is certain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for for the, the test that's so easy to pass, though we can't pass it on our own, but you have given your spirit that we might. That he has worked faith in us that we might and, and united us to, by faith to Jesus Christ that we might pass this test. And that we have. Strengthen us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.